0: Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 52. When the time came for purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said, in the law of the Lord a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them as they were at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. when he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I'm sure they have been around for a long time, but I feel sometime in early pandemic, I started to see the, the, the Buzzfeed style quizzes of you know which type of character are you from this thing, you know, kind of circulating with, with more frequency than I had seen before. You know, the which which office character are you, or which Marvel character, or Wu-Tang clan member, or which Muppet are you, or which Harry Potter house would you be in? And um you know they're all basically the same format. We answer a few questions and the machine does its magic, whirls around and then spits out you know an answer. It tells us who we are and uh, And then we debate uh, if it's right, and if you're if these are these are your thing, you can Google them. BuzzFeed has millions of them, so they've repeated this over and over again. why 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 are these so interesting to us? We love to find ourselves in the story. We love to uh, imagine who you know who we are in the in the bigger picture. I think it's some of the appeal around you know, Enneagram and Myers-Briggs or, you know, the four temperaments. Um, you know, obviously these are more sophisticated than the BuzzFeed style quizzes, but they're, they're an examination of who we are, that we're, we're learning something about who we are, but we're also saying, hey, I had this, this puzzle piece that is me. Where, where, you know, where does it fit uh, in, in the world? How does it fit in with the rest of you? We want to find ourselves in the story." Because there can be a lot of pain in our lives when we can't, when we, when we can't seem to locate ourselves, uh, to know who we really are, uh, to know how we fit in and connect with, with others. It, it, it's uh, terribly painful to, to lack that understanding and knowledge of ourselves, but also to feel isolated and disconnected uh, from our brothers and sisters, just to think no one is like me is a very painful thought, and it's one of the things that I think can get ramped up in times of anxiety or or depression, or um, or times where we're, we're we're feeling you know particularly challenged. We have that thought of like no one no one is like me, and it's a very painful thought. Or no one here is like me. Do I belong in this place? I'm comforted by the beauty that one of the most insistent, repeated, uh, sort of staggering things about, about the Gospels, the story of God's grace, the story of Jesus, is that there is a place for you no matter where you have begun and no matter where you are now. Just let that sink into your heart. There is a place for you, intentional, laid out, meaningful, nuanced, detailed, specific space for you, no matter where you have be begun, no matter where you are now. We've been looking since the beginning of the year at people having different encounters with the presence of God across a range of circumstances, across the scriptures. And for maybe you know some of these stories, it was easier for you to find a connection point that, than in others. Um, or maybe you struggle to connect. Like, I'm not like Moses. I'm not even really, you know, like Hannah or, or, or Elijah in the cave or Isaiah in the throne room. It's easy sometimes to read the biblical stories at, at arm's length and just, you know, this is another time, another place of contact is so radically different than mine that I just, I struggle to relate. But, um, I think one of the things Sometimes in our you know more Greek-formed linear way of processing, we miss some of the magic that the Hebrews you know had, which they read the, you know they read the story as their story. They read themselves. Obviously, it was their story, but they read themselves into these texts in, in a powerful way. Uh, and so we're, we're back here as we're we're ending Epiphany this week. We're back in the Gospels. We're bookending with two stories of Jesus. You know, the Magi coming to visit at the beginning and then, um, th- these accounts in Luke and, and Luke seems to have this on his mind, this idea of connection, uh, because in the, in, in the first two chapters, he has been telling the story in a way that it seems like he's trying to pull people in from wherever they have begun, wherever their starting place has been. And he's given us a, 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 a kind of staggering array of characters across just two chapters of the story. So um, we know he was writing to this this noble person Theophilus, and it's, it seems like he's trying. No matter where you're coming to this story from, that you find a place where you can belong in it. We've had we've had an older couple who was surprised to be having a child so late in life. Elizabeth and Zachariah. We obviously have Mary and Joseph. This young girl is is surprised to be having a child so soon. Um, her husband who had to endure that scandal is now bringing his child, uh, as the law required to the temple for this particular sacrifice. We have, we have Jesus on the threshold of young adult life, um, Feel sometimes like we're not getting that many pictures of the preteen life in the scriptures. Um, but we, we, And we also have Simeon and Anna in, in this account, These, this older man and older woman, as their time is winding down, they're worshiping God day and night, praying for the salvation um, of their nation, of their people inter- interceding. Luke seems to be drawing readers in across many ages and stages of life into this picture. and to me it it's it's really interesting to consider like if you just read the Christmas story. <laughs> This t- story that we read today follows the Christmas story. If you just had the Christmas story and you didn't have what was next, what would you imagine would be the next type of story that you would hear about this Jesus, right? We have who the angels and and the magi coming and King Herod flipping out and literally being unbelievably wicked in his his response and, and his parents having to flee, like all this, like all of heaven showing up on the scene to announce the, the coming of this child into the world and then Almost nothing, <laughs> like 30 years of, of basic obscurity. We have one incident here recorded as a baby, one incident as a preteen. And, and it, it, it's surprising to me after all that happens around his birth that we don't know more about Jesus' younger life. But I think these these stories, as brief as they are, they, they're very they're very telling. Uh we, we see some things about Jesus that are really important. We also see uh those who are encountering him and their reactions, and and it, I think it speaks to some important things for our hearts. So I want us just quickly to see sort of the, the four characters of this story um in, in, in a quick survey. First, we have Simeon. I definitely will call him Simon at least once. Simple enough. We don't, we don't know exactly how old Simeon is, but you definitely get the sense that he's on in age. And this is so good for us. I think in our culture we we obsess over youth. We uh, we 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 fight with all of our might to to deny and ignore the reality of death. We're we're doing everything we can to try to stop or slow or reverse the aging process. And, and here in Jesus's early life, in some of the only stories we have of this middle space from his birth stories to his coming on the scene in his public ministry, we have these older older prophets. Um, who, who who seem to know something about Jesus, know him more deeply than even the others around him. I think that's uh the the dignity and the and and the the beauty of 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 Simeon and Anna's life is important for us in, in, in a culture like ours. So Simeon has a prophetic sense from God, somewhere along the line, that God is going to allow him to live until he sees Messiah come. And we don't know how long he's been waiting, but if you pay attention to the words of his song that he sings when he takes Jesus in his arms, it seems like it's been quite a long time. And, uh, A a little detail that that I noticed is it says, the text says he was moved by the Spirit and went to the temple court. So Simeon is somewhere in Jerusalem and he feels a prompting from the Holy Spirit that this is the moment that he needs to go to the temple courts. We don't know how many times he's had a prompting like that. We don't know uh, what goes on uh, on in his mind, but Mary and Joseph and Jesus are coming to the temple and Simeon is coming from somewhere else in Jerusalem and he intersects them right at this moment. And to me, what this makes me think of is is uh, what was the internal mechanism of Simeon's mind when he felt that prompting? What if he had rationalized it away? Think of how long he's been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. What if he had just been like, ah, oh, I was just at the temple earlier today, I'm exhausted. I've, I've, already, I've already been this week. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not, not, not feeling it, I'm too tired. This has, been too, this has been too stressful. There's too many things going on. Or for, for some reason, he had just ignored the prompting. But he goes. He follows the the leading of the Holy Spirit, and God makes good on His promise to him. And this is a powerful picture of how uh, how God does fulfill promises to us. There are times, of course, where God just does the whole thing, and we we show up and are, and are blessed, you know, with with a, f- a fulfillment or a fruition of something God has been intending to do. But God seems to love this way. He seems to love to get us involved, um, to invite the participation of obedience that actually we get a greater share of joy when we do it uh, alongside with God. Obviously, we're we're, we're not moving into the place of, of authority that God has, but God lets us have a share in participating in obedience in the story. I also think it's pretty interesting, having had uh, several infant children myself, uh, that Simon immediately sweeps Jesus into his arms, and and maybe it's just a cultural divi- divide here, but um, you know it seems like he must have carried some instant level of respect um, with him. Maybe it was just uh, their, their culture had this uh, a, a better reverence for their elders than we do. But but however it works, uh, Mary and Joseph immediately let him hold the baby, and he bursts into song. <laughs> He burst into into verse, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon takes Jesus into his arms and and, and God has made good on his promise to him. Simeon knows it, but he knows more than that. We heard in the beginning he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's living in a nation that is occupied by Rome, that had so many of their promises as a people must have felt like they were on sort of an infinite delay. How much pain had the nation experienced? And Simon is waiting for Messiah. What's Messiah going to do? Come and deliver his people. This is about, this is about Israel's story, you know, coming, to, coming to f- fulfillment and fruition and, and, and reaching its, its, its promised place. But even right away, he knows it's more than that. This child is going to be how God is going to heal the whole world he's going to be a light to the nations and sometimes we can fly over details like this but um, the tension between uh, you know the the, the the faithful Jewish people who are waiting on the consolation of Israel and the Gentile nations um, is massive in, in in the in the first century in the rest of the the New Testament there's um, over and over again these these two communities trying to come to live together as one family is tremendous is a tremendously powerful theme that shows up over and over again read the book of Ephesians so all the racism all the cultural divide all all the all the societal uh, tension all the sense of of we are other we are different Simeon takes up this 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 child who he's been promised that he's going he's going to get to meet before before he goes and he knows that this is the consolation of Israel this is Israel's Messiah but he knows right away it is a light to all the nations A revelation to the Gentiles. The child's father and mother marvel at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, Mary and Joseph, the, his parents are, are, are marveling, and then Simeon tells Mary these, these wild things. Many people's hearts are going to be exposed by coming near to Jesus. One of the things that seems to happen over and over again is when someone comes near to Jesus, what is deepest and truest about them eventually gets exposed. And if they try to hide that and protect themselves and, and imagine, you know, like that they're, that they're still in a place of status, often Jesus will raise the standard of God's word so that they can see it shining on their life and their need of Him. But when someone admits their need and confesses their weakness, right, there's this powerful embrace of grace that that takes place, many people's hearts will be exposed by coming near to this Jesus. But he also warns her specifically that there's going to be a lot of pain in the journey. A a sword is going to pierce your soul. Imagine uh, what Mary is going to have to endure, what she's going to have to experience, the rejection of her son, eventually standing there as he is executed by the Romans. So we don't know, like we've said, how long Simeon has been waiting, but we can't imagine it's been a long time. And, and Simeon had seen the power and the might of Rome. He, he knew the stories of, of Herod and this sort of maniac displays of power, paranoid murder, killing his own family members, ordering the murder of all these children. If you were to look out in Simeon's world, there wouldn't have been a lot of reasons to hope. And yet he held on to this little prophetic seed of promise in his heart that God is gonna let me see Messiah. And then the prompting comes one day, go to the temple. All the resistance that may have been there, or maybe he jumped for joy and went right away. I know in my own heart, there's this rationalization that sometimes takes place. But I love this about Simeon. His waiting had not made him cynical. Look at the picture we have of him. He's full of worship. He's intimate with with God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He has a more nuanced understanding of what God is doing in his time than others. How many people had flown past Simeon, basically ignored him day after day in the city, in the temple, and yet this man had a more nuanced understanding of what God was doing in their time? than many others, that he that he saw himself as bound up with God's purposes in a particular way, that he was able to speak radical, true encouragement, that he was also able to bring honest, prophetic words. What a thing. Our, I just want to say, our world deeply, deeply needs that. People who know who they are and are are, are powerfully connected to God People who have deep joy that's beyond their circumstances, who look out at a, at a pandemic cresting into almost a year now and, and, and all the uncertainty of the future and, and have, have have a source of, of peace, a source of joy, a source even of venting their sorrow in, in, in faith despite their circumstances, beyond what just happens to be going on in the turn of circumstances in, in, in their given day or week. People who have a greater sense of purpose beyond just their own self, People who can speak radical encouragement, not just flattery. People who can speak honest words about how things really are instead of just leveling criticism or, 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 or keeping everyone at a distance with sarcasm. Simeon gives us this sort of holistic picture. What is your vision for life at 85? Are you thinking that far? We need old saints who are passing on their wisdom, who are teaching us how to delight in God, who are moved by the Holy Spirit, who sense that prompting and don't dismiss it. They go to the place where God has planned for them to experience Him. All right, that's Simeon. We're going we're going to move much quicker uh through through the other three. Now for Anna, and there are some similarities. Here here's quickly what the text tells us about her. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. She had lived with her husband 7 years after her marriage, then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So here we have a a, a woman who has at some point been deeply discipled by disappointment. Whatever Anna had dreamed of her life, it's very hard to imagine on her wedding day that it was this picture. She had lost her husband after seven years. There are no children that are mentioned here, and family, especially in this first century context, is how you were taken care of. It was your security, uh, you know, net. And 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 she took her pain, all that could have broken her life. She took her pain to God, and God formed her into this joy filled prophet. It says she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Sometimes like Anna seems to be willing to pay attention to the details of her life that gave her the freedom to connect with God in a way that most people just didn't have the margin for, didn't have the time for, and yet she said, I'm going to be in this place keep it keeping watch. I'm going to be in this place interceding. I'm going to be in this place seeking the face of God. She had come to delight in the presence of God. This, this stirred a bunch of things up in my heart as I was considering this. Some of us we still only think about prayer or worship or practices of seeking God, basically in the category of obligation and the reality is i't um, mean i don 't say that with any guilt uh, obligation is is one of the, the categories we probably have to pass through to get to a space of delight. There, there probably is a time where you, you need to do this, you know, just out of discipline over and over until you, you come to a place where, where where you truly enjoy the presence of uh, of God in, in a consistent way over and over again. And there's a lot to be said, said about that. I uh, Some of the mentors as I was coming up in, in the faith, you know, we talk about setting aside a time, even if you don't feel like it, to connect with God and just do that over and over again. And then eventually you'll come to a place where you're like, I really need not to miss that I noticed when I missed that time is a really significant implication in my day I I, you know so like in the beginning it was just obligation then it's like I need this and then it was like I don't want to miss this this is absolutely the joy uh, 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 of my life can you believe for a day maybe you're there now but if not can you believe for a day where you would absolutely delight in the presence of God Seeking his face wouldn't just be an obligation for you, for you, but it might be the thing that you look forward to most in your life. I really want to invite us not to settle for the small sort of plot land of obligation when there is a wide country of joy to run in in the presence of God. Let's move. And Anna helps us see the way. Her life and appetites are submitted to God, she is seeing the world beyond herself. And here's the thing, Anna and Simeon, it seems like both of them had seen some real pain. We know, we know some of the details of Anna, her disappointment, her grief. I think they had been through um, the dark night of the soul. What St. John of the Cross uh, famously called the dark night of the soul, these, these periods of, of, of grief and loss and disconnection and, and flailing around and wondering where God is that many of us go through. And those are our crucial formative times in our life. And what comes out of the dark night of the soul is a really important question for what's going to happen in our lives, how our soul is going to be formed, how our thinking is going to be changed, how sometimes our compassion can be expanded. Uh, This is the type of pain that that has the potential to expand your life. St. John of the Cross famously said this, through the dark night, Pride becomes humility, greed becomes simplicity, wrath becomes contentment, luxury becomes peace, gluttony becomes moderation, envy becomes joy, sloth becomes strength. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of the dark night. I don't want to experience a dark night of the soul. I'm not, ch- I'm not longing for that. But when I think back over, over everything that's happened since the pandemic, there has undeniably been a stripping away of a whole bunch of things that I thought were uh, essential and a whole bunch of things that, um, that, that I would have chosen to go on with. And yet in that sort of stripping away, even if you want to call this past year, of, I know some people say this is the best year of their life and, 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 and our experiences are all, all across the spectrum, but, uh, even if even if you wouldn't necessarily jump to say, this has been a dark night of my soul, some of you have experienced pride becoming humility as these things have been stripped away, greed becoming simplicity, wrath becoming contentment, luxury becoming peace. Love, he says, no one will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by the means of the dark night. I have friends who would say, this is us becoming right-sized. right <laughs> sized is passing through suffering while keeping our our faith fixed on Christ. In silence, and often what seems like a delay, something that Anna and Simeon were both familiar with, what happens is our motives get exposed. we can see what we're really after in, in, our, in our lives. Our, our pride, is, as St. As, as John uh, of the Cross said, you know, gets deflated. We learn that we are truly in need of God. There are things we can't meet the deep needs of our soul just out of our own resources. We become rooted in more than just our experiences, more than just the turns of our circumstances. Many experience greater intimacy as, the, as the, one of the dark nights of the soul in my own life was was sort of basically crippling anxiety in my college years, and i you know had different bouts of it since then but um there was a real like several year long wrestle with it and I would have never chosen to have it, but I experienced so much greater intimacy with god there was all, it was there was, i used to say to Allison I was like it is it is worth it to be rescued in this way. It is worth going through the anxiety to be rescued in this way because the relief and the embrace on the other end is so palpable and powerful. But also, there was an expanding of compassion. Going through this dark night, it matures us. It helps us to have deep compassion when someone else comes and they tell a part of their story and we can relate and connect to it. i like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. There's an expanded compassion in our life. We mature in our love for, for, for God. So, <laughs> We're a week away from entering Lent uh, and, and, and we're, we live in a world that is uh, obsessed with self-sufficiency. I think we can learn a lot from Annie, Anna and Simeon who endured dark nights of the soul so that at this moment they could be shining, taking up the Messiah in their arms, blessing this family, giving, speaking to those who are waiting for the hope of the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, the other characters uh, were even going to be faster with them. Mary and Joseph, and and specifically Mary, right? After all they have been through, right? We've, we, um, you know, this is a pretty wild moment in the story, uh, where, where they're where they're leaving Jerusalem after the festival, and Jesus isn't with them. Think about the angels, the announcements, the Magi, the shepherds coming, you know, fleeing to Egypt. All that this child is going to be, and, and and then they lose Jesus. People, they lose Jesus. This is. This is a very big deal. They, you, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I have a lot of compassion for them. There are no parenting books that cover this is how you raise the son of God. But I want to tell you, I've been at Prospect Park. You know, like let me get the kids out of the house for a while or or whatever. And I've been on my own with a couple of kids at Prospect Park and and looked around and it, so it feels like it's always the youngest. And this this has changed over the years, but I can't find one of the kids. And you're just like, ah, oh, it's fine. They're playing. I just can't see them. They're behind something, right? So you walk around, slowly walk around, not panicking at all, walking around, uh, looking. You don't see them, right? Uh, and then you start to look more frantically, start to walk more quickly, you start to sort of like slow, controlled jog around, around the playground. It doesn't take one minute, <laughs> two minutes, right? These, 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 these minutes feel like an eternity and I look down. It's been it's been two minutes and I can't find them and I'm basically on the verge of like screaming out and and a few times like thankfully just a few times it's been where it was either our kid or a, a, a child of a family that we were with and we we couldn't find them anywhere we looked and we looked and it feels like it feels like it's been years it's been like you know ten minutes but. You find the child way way off in some other you know, section of the parking, like you know, just your mind's racing with what the possibilities you know, could have been. Can you imagine how anxiously Mary and Joseph were searching for Jesus? I can I can feel it tangibly, or right? I can just like feel it in my in my bones, the anxious searching. And I also, I believe Jesus is without sin. I think this may be as close as it gets. Um, I mean, it's like, come on, you know, you know we're leaving town. And this, I'm definitely from the parents' perspective, the kid's like, you left me. But I, I'm like, you should have come. That's definitely where I'm at in, in this. But um, we, we know something of, of Jesus' family life from here. His parents come and they offer in the temple the sacrifice of the poor. So they don't—they don't have you know great financial means. They're traveling probably in a group of of aunts and uncles and, and many extended family. And somewhere down the line, right, um, they, they they look up and recognize that Jesus is not with them. They've lost Jesus. This is, I, I love I love. Um, as a parent, I was thinking, what am I supposed to make of this story? And sometimes Jesus, I want him to be like, like, like we would expect him to be, just jump on like, I'm so sorry, did, did you didn't know I was with you. Yes, I, I, I should have told you I was going to be here. I had this you know, plan. I was planning to stay at the temple a couple extra days. Give me a hug. I'm so sorry you were worried. And then instead he's just like, why did you look for me? Did you not know I'd be at my father's house? And I was like, come on, Jesus, this is long for a little compassion. Like, remember what they've been through. But I love what N.T. Wright says. We mustn't assume he is accompanying us when we go off on our own business. But if and when we sense the lack of his presence, we must be prepared to hunt for him, to search for him in prayer, in the scriptures, in the sacraments, and not give up until we find him again. We must expect, too, that when we do meet him again, he will not say or do what we expect He must be busy about his father's work, and so must we. Mary and Joseph encounter Jesus in their anxious searching. And I want to tell you, if you are in a season of anxious searching in your life, you can meet Christ there as, as well. And it isn't exactly how they would draw it up. And a lot of times his words feel surprising to us in that time. But that's the thing that Mary treasures in her hearts. I want to tell you, it's been many times in my life where this is borne out, where the thing that God surprised me with that I wouldn't have chosen and wasn't expected ends up being exactly the thing that I needed to know. And in their anxious searching, they learned something fundamental about Jesus and his connection, ultimately that his connection to the the Father is so profound that the temple is His Father's house. This is Mary treasured these things in her heart. They were given this unbelievably unique task. Like I said, no parenting book in the world on how to raise the Son of God. And they lost Him. How anxious would you be? And yet in the process, in their anxious, anxious searching, they encounter Jesus in a way that shows them more of who He truly is and, and what responsibility they're stewarding as his parents. They show great faith. The last character in the story is not a person. Um, it's the temple. Over and over again, we've seen the temple show up in these stories, this, this place of worship, this place of sacrifice and atonement where mercy and forgiveness is given out, this place of connection. And the reason I want to mention it is because Jesus, um, you know, uh, calls it his father's house. he go, he he goes back in this moment where where you know he, he by, by all accounts, it seems like he should have been with his his family. And it reminded me of this this um, description in First Peter about the community of the followers of Jesus. And in and, and 1 Peter 2, verse 5, it says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't have fully time to sketch all of this out, but one of the most powerful messages of the entire scriptures, all the way through, is God dwelling in a tabernacle, you know, God dwelling in a bush, God dwelling in a tabernacle, God dwelling in a temple, uh, all, all the drama and reality around that temple, and then at Pentecost, human beings becoming the temple of God, the dwelling place, right? When Jesus is on the cross, the veil that separated the most holy place of the temple was torn, not just so that we can go into this one specific locale, but that the presence of God can come and fill our very lives. The veil on our lives is is torn. We're we're forgiven. Our self-sufficiency is is, is exposed, and in union with Christ through the gospel, we become the temple. you are a temple. Uh, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. What an incredibly powerful thing. But also we are the temple. And this is like one of those metaphors we have to let do its work on us. We are the temple and we are built into the temple. First Peter's words are so so important. Jesus you know, makes a big deal about showing up at the temple early in, this, in the account of his life to, sh- to show us the importance of this place, place of worship, place of atonement, place of mercy, place of connection, place of community, and, and then to flip it on its head and say, you are the temple. You are the place in the world where people should be able to come if you are uh, uh, united to Jesus by the gospel, filled with his Holy Spirit. That it should be true of our life that people could see what God is really like in the world through our lives. What a thing. But that happens oh so much more powerfully when we do so in community. We are the temple, the body of Christ, the gathering place. And, and, and even as we're doing it virtually, it's such a powerful thing. We are built together as a spiritual house. That's why it's such a loss. In the American church, when we when we treat the church community as merely a stop-off place for religious consumerism, let me go to this place as long as I'm getting the things that I exactly can describe in my own perception of what I need. And as soon as I'm not feeling like that need is met, I'm going to go down the road to, to, to another stop-off place for religious consumerism. No, absolutely. You are the temple. We are the temple. We are living stones built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to minister the presence of God back and forth to one another, to offer spiritual sacrifices, to minister the mercy of God we've received in Christ back and forth to one another um to 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 connect in community to, to be built together. we don't have time to get all the way into it, but one of the things we we lose when we settle for religious consumerism. You know, give me your goods and services, and if it's good enough, I'll stay around. As opposed to like, no, I'm being built together with these people, and together we're a small outpost of what God and God's character would look like in a specific place, showing that radical generosity, welcoming in the other, breaking down walls of division. You know, like uh, you know, being absolutely staggering in our hospitality and welcome to one another, like that we're supposed to be this outpost of the kingdom of God. Where we could come in and someone like Simeon, right, who's not a part of Mary and Joseph's family, but he, he, he treats the child like he's a family member. And we're all sharing together in this thing because it's not just about the blood of our family lines, but the, the blood of Jesus that has made us family from Jews to Gentiles, right? Across all the spectrums of society, we're being brought together into this kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation. And we, we bail on that because of inconvenience. We lose something wildly significant, and often it's not year until years later that we realize what we've lost. But sometimes you sometimes people leave the the, the church like they leave a relationship. And they imagine this relationship has gotten hard. I'm going to go find something easier, something more compelling. And the reality is all you've done is delay the exact same process because you're going to have to go through it again. You will never actually come to a place of intimacy, understanding, shared life, compassion, care, integration, love, unless you go through those hard places. Consumerism is a killer. It keeps you shallow. We are the church. We are the temple. We are the outpost of the kingdom of God. And even you know, in the pandemic, even scattered, we have such a high calling to be this place together, built together into a spiritual house. I love Simeon and Anna, Mary and Joseph's story in, in these accounts because they sort of shine a light that we don't see that often. I want to close with these questions. Do you believe God has made promises to you? If you don't believe that there's some specific ones like Simeon has, um, you can begin with the promises that are just found in the text of the New Testament about for anyone who is united to Christ. Just start there. Because I want to tell you, whether you believe it or not, God has made some staggering promises to everyone who is united to Christ. Let's begin by... uh, drawing our hearts to the well of these promises and letting them drink deeply that they might be nourished with the love of God. And, and many times, some specific promises for our own life will come through the process of meditating on these promises that God gives everyone who is united to Christ. Do you believe God has made promises to you? And when you sense that prompting from the Spirit, will you rationalize it? Or will you follow through as the Spirit is leading? Do you believe God can satisfy your life? That's the question Anna brings up for me. She didn't leave the temple day and night. She's worshiping. She's fasting and praying. She had moved beyond the country of obligation into this wide space of joy and delight. Do I really believe that God can satisfy the deepest needs of my life? Do you believe that God can meet you in your anxious searching? Why is that so hard to say? Anxious searching, anxious searching. Do you believe God can meet you in your anxious searching? searching, not knowing what what this next year is going to be, not knowing how your job's going to come together, not knowing all these different questions of of your life and what it's going to look like. When will will we be meeting back together? Do you believe God can meet you in your anxious searching? And do you believe that we are the temple? As incredibly powerful as the temple is, even as a character in this story, this is who God is building us to be. To encounter the presence for ourselves, but also for our neighbors. This is the last message of our Epiphany series, and, and we're going to move into Ash Wednesday and to, to Lent. And I just want to invite you, maybe you've never gone on the Lenten journey, you know, really with all your heart. I want to invite you to come and look for Jesus during this Lent season. Well, you know... Pray and ask God. How would you? Is there something you want me to give up and fast that I might drink deeply from the well of your promises? Is there something, God, maybe that you want me to add into my life? Maybe it's it's an extra half hour of of getting up so that I can seek you, seek your face. Maybe it's like some um, secret acts of generosity that no one else is going to know about that you're going to practice all through Lent. Pray in these days ahead, right? Don't let Lent surprise you. Pray in these days ahead and say, God, how do you want to reveal yourself to me in this next season as we go on this journey towards Good Friday, towards the cross again, towards the resurrection celebration at Easter this Lenten journey has something to to, to speak to our hearts we've been encountering the presence let, let me just give the big reveal that's our whole, whole whole life right we're all about trying you know seeking to encounter the, the presence of God so we've been doing that in epiphany we're going to continue to seek the presence of God even through repentance and and and, and wholehearted embrace of the love of Christ during this Lent season let me pray for you Heavenly Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts the promises that you've made to us today. I pray, God, that you would help us to believe in the depths of our being that you can satisfy our life. God, I pray for anyone who is in a time of really anxious searching. God, maybe they're, they're worried about the results of a health test or Uh, They're worried about their job or worried about something going on in their family. God, I pray that anyone who is in a moment or a season of anxious searching, that you would meet them right now with your shalom, with your embrace, with your peace. Even if your words are initially unexpected, may they be exactly what we need. and Help us to believe that we are the temple. Lead us, God, by your Holy Spirit. Minister, bear the fruit of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.